Want to start off by saying if this is your first time visiting us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship, whether you're in our room, our sanctuary here, or if you're online, we want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. <laughs> My name is Pastor Nathan, and today we are going to get a glimpse into the very throne room of God. Beautiful picture. A little strange, but a beautiful picture. We're going to get to see and hear what has taken place there. And the prayer is to walk away reassured of our hope and our future. You know, there was once a young man who grew up in the palace of a very powerful world leader, and he had everything anyone could want. He had the very best education, the best food, best clothes, best of everything. But one day, everything changed. Suddenly, he found himself fleeing for his life, found his way to a shepherd's home where he then became a shepherd himself and spent some time out there in the simplicity of the rural life. Then God sent him back to Egypt where he then saw God do some amazing miracles, awesome deeds, deeds that crushed Egypt and brought low Pharaoh's army. And once Pharaoh let this man's people go, Moses saw God continue to do awesome miracles through the Red Sea and out in the wilderness. Miracle after miracle for him and his people. But then, unfortunately, God's people rebelled and God judged them. But Moses went up to intercede on their behalf. <clears throat> now, at this point in Moses' story, I want to ask, if you were in Moses' shoes at that moment, what would you do? What would you ask from God in that situation? He had had everything one could possibly want in life. He had lost everything. He had found peace. He had then found great difficulty. Now he was leading a group of miraculously freed former slaves who complained about everything. You know, living this life of obedience to God was hard and it was difficult. Now, if you were in Moses' shoes, would you simply maybe ask to just go back to the good life? God, just send me back to the good life. <laughs> send me back to the luxury where I didn't have any problems, I didn't have any want, I had wealth and food and, and all of that. What would you ask for? Well, do you know what Moses asked for in this situation? It tells us in Exodus 33:18. It says, then Moses said, please let me see your glory. You know, seeing God's glory, I think, is what we need in every moment of life, every circumstance of life, especially the tough times, especially those times where it's difficult. I believe that an accurate, proper, and healthy picture of God's glory is what cures us and frees us from pride, fear, compromise, corruption, deadness, spiritual exhaustion, and lukewarmness the very things we just got done studying in the seven churches of Revelation. It's what frees us from trusting in things that aren't God at all or giving up in the face of difficulty and, you know, God's glory, seeing his glory. That's the point of this whole book. You remember back in chapter one, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, God Almighty in all of his glory. And we, when we behold him in all of his glory, just hold that picture in our mind and bask in that glory. It's then that those chains of idolatry are broken in our lives, all those things we trust in, because in the face of God's glory, all of those idols are exposed as worthless. 
exposed as, as unworthy of our trust. And beholding God's glory, I think, purifies us of immorality. Gives us a new lens with which to look at the world, a reality that is defined by God and his word and his will and his way. It's the glory of God, the glory of Jesus that, that surrounds us, his people. It surrounds his church. We see a little picture of this in Revelation, right? Just as the, the churches of chapters two and three are surrounded by God's glory. On this side, you got chapter one, which you have this just wonderful, amazing vision of Jesus Christ, God Almighty, and all his glory. And then here on the other side, in chapters four and five, we then get a picture of God in his throne room, in all of his glory. And I think that's just a neat picture of our reality today, that we, his people, we're surrounded by God's glory. It surrounds us on all sides, and it's that glory beheld. When we behold the glory of God, that emboldens our hope and elicits a response from us, or should elicit a response, a response of awe-inspired worship, a response that John the Apostle got to see as he was caught up to heaven itself, a response that he recorded for us starting here in chapter four, and that's what we're gonna be looking at today, what John saw, what it means for us, but first, we are gonna take time to worship God because he is glorious, he is almighty. And so join me in prayer. Father, we love you so much, God. You are so glorious. Lord, we know that it is you that created all things, including us. It is you that makes all things possible. It is you that moves and speaks, and, and God, you're just so wonderful, so amazing. And God, we as your people, we, we profess you as our God. We profess you as God Almighty, the one who came and died for our sins on the cross, who was risen on the third day and is now in heaven again, at the right hand of the Father, forever interceding for us. So God, we want to worship you as we behold your glory because you are worth it. We want to worship you, God, because you are the only one worthy of worship. And so God, we ask today that you would speak to us through your word, God, through the vision that you gave John, what you showed him, Lord, that we would be encouraged by it. That we would be encouraged by what is taking place in heaven in this very moment, what will be taking place in heaven forever, and what is the future hope that we have to look forward to as your people. Lord, the life we live here on this earth, it has good times, but often it has a lot of bad times, Lord. And I pray, God, each one of us would walk away today, God, with a picture of your glory, a picture that we would hang on to in each moment of every single day, knowing that that is our future, that is our hope, to be in the presence of God Almighty and your perfection and your love, God. We just, we can't wait. But Lord, we get to do a little bit of that now, and so God, we ask that you would be blessed by our worship, our praise. We love you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are going to be in Revelation chapter 4 today, so turn or swipe there, but chapter 4 of Revelation is the transition point following the divine outline that is given to us by Revelation chapter 1 verse 19. If you remember in Revelation 1:19, it says, to, Jesus said to John, therefore write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. That is the outline of the entire book of Revelation. And so the first part, what you have seen, that was chapter one, which John did indeed write down. 
If you remember, John at the time of this revelation was exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith and for his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there on Patmos, he was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day. And it says that he got this wonderful vision of Jesus Christ. And so he recorded that for us, what it was that he had seen. Jesus Christ in all his glory, all his divinity, all his power and authority. And so this revelation of Jesus, again, this is what this entire book is about. This book isn't primarily a tell me the future and what's going to happen. It's a revelation of who Jesus is, his will, his heart, his method, his purpose. And so that's what this book is all about. In, vision, or in chapter one there in that vision, we saw Jesus as both king and high priest, He introduced himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the living one, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. That is what John had seen. And then chapters two and three was what is, the second part of the divine outline, the presence and the existence of the church, the body of Christ on earth. And so through chapters two and three, there were seven letters that went to seven real specific churches of the time. But I also believe that those churches are a picture of the church throughout history from the beginning of the church's existence all the way up until its rapture. And so it was a picture of all the challenges that the churches go through, the difficulties and and the encouragements from Jesus. And so we saw that in chapters two and three. And then the third third part of the outline is what will take place after this. This is what begins in chapters four and goes all the way through to chapter 22, which is primarily future events. And specifically, it's chapters six through 19 that deal with the judgment that is to come upon the earth, the judgment that comes after the church age. And so from here forward, the book of Revelation is gonna be recounting God's judgment on the unbelieving world prior to his earthly reign here on earth. Earthly reign is redundant. So, but before we get to that judgment itself, here in chapter four, we start with this um, beautiful picture of the origin of that judgment, where that judgment comes from, and where is that? The very throne of God in heaven. That is where the judgment that is gonna fall upon this world comes from. And so we get a glimpse here of the throne. We get a glimpse of the one who sits on that throne. We get a glimpse of what is taking place in that throne room. And so we get a picture of what takes place in heaven. It's also a picture of what will forever take place in heaven. And it's a picture of the promise to the overcomers. Those overcomers that were, that were referenced in those seven letters as each one of them ended with a promise to the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who is victorious. And those people are the ones whose sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. And so Revelation 4, starting in verse 1, It says, after this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit. So that phrase, after this, that's a key phrase there if you're a note taker or an underliner or a highlighter. After this, he says it twice there at the beginning of verse one and right there towards the end, I will show you what must take place after this. After what? After the vision of chapter one. After Jesus' message to the seven churches that we had through chapters two and three. After the church age that those seven letters also reference um, and, and relate to. So this is after chapters one, after chapter two, and after chapter three. 
after these things, suddenly John is caught up and finds himself in heaven, the very throne room, in the very presence of God. It's important to understand the chronology of Revelation because chapters one through three, the, no, the focus of those chapters has been on the church, on the believers, on the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, through chapters one, two, and three, the word church is uh, used 19 times because the whole section there is about Jesus and his church, about Jesus and his bride. But then here in chapter four, immediately it says, suddenly, after these things, what we see from here forward is that the church is no longer present on earth. It's as if they disappear, or I don't know, maybe they were caught up somehow. From chapter four on, and I've stated this in a previous study, the church isn't seen. The church isn't spoken about. It's not even mentioned until the end of Revelation. And so the focus on Revelation during this, after this time period, after the church age section, the focus of Revelation is what is taking place on earth. And the church is not there for it. Very important to understand. Now, Revelation is also a prophetical book. It's a, it's a prophecy that is written. And so, um, coupling that with the idea that, that the churches of chapters two and three, although represented seven real churches of the time, um, coupling the idea of the prophecy of Revelation with the idea that those church, uh, churches represent church ages, and coupling that with the fact that the church is gone after that, the picture is that the church age by chapter four has run its course. The church age is done. And so what the opening of Revelation four shows us here with John being called up, John being instantly in heaven is a preview of coming attractions, all right? This is a preview for us, the church. I believe here John is representative of the saved. He is a picture of the rapture of the church which we see here a, a glimpse of this in chapter four, after which a judgment then comes upon the earth, a judgment that we commonly refer to as the tribulation period. Now I'm bringing this up because I believe that some confuse uh, two important events biblically. They confuse what's called the rapture of the church or what we refer to as the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. I believe the confusing of those two events comes from a misunderstanding of the phrase the day of the Lord, which is referenced in scripture a number of times. And as I've mentioned in past studies, when we see this time period referred to as the day of the Lord, that word day isn't just referring to a 24 hour period, it's referring to a time period. A time period, which we know is a seven year period of judgment on earth that begins with the rapture of the church and ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ here on earth. So there are two events that bookend this whole time period called the day of the Lord. And, and the reason I see those as two different events is because biblically there's, there's a lot of differences between the rapture of the church and the second coming. There's differences. In the rapture, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 through 17, the rapture is when Jesus comes for his church. He comes to get his church. He comes for his bride. But according to Jude 1, 14 and Revelation 19, the second coming of Jesus Christ tells us that he comes with his bride. So there's a difference there. 
Rapture, he comes for them. Second coming, he comes with them. Again, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in the rapture, it tells us that the church meets him up in the air. It says that we meet him in the clouds. We meet him in the air. But according to Zechariah 14 and Revelation 19, during the second coming, Jesus touches down on earth. Doesn't remain in the air, but touches down on earth. In the rapture, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 52, it tells us that the rapture happens suddenly, like a twinkling of an eye. The idea is there that it happens unexpectedly. It catches uh, the world by surprise, if you will. But the second coming happens at the end of a very specific seven-year timetable. You can literally count it down to the time, according to Daniel and Revelation, that once these things start happening, we know that it's a seven-year timetable. And then there's a whole bunch of others, but we don't have time to get into all of that. But I believe biblically, the rapture and the second coming are two separate events that are a part of this time frame called the day of the Lord. And we're seeing a picture of this rapture of the church here in Revelation chapter four. Now, some people get hung up on the fact, oh, but the word rapture isn't in the Bible. Therefore, well, neither is the word Bible. So what are you going to do with, well, the Bible says to read the Bible. Well, the word Bible isn't in the Bible that says to read the Bible, so therefore, what? Just because the word rapture doesn't exist in our English Bible doesn't mean the concept isn't taught. But if you're a real stickler for having to find the word rapture in your Bible, well, the word that we find in Thessalonians that's referenced to this catching up is this Greek word harpazo. It means to be caught up, to be seized suddenly. But the word rapture that we reference in English comes from the Latin word rapturos. So when the Bible was translated into Latin, the word harpazo was translated into the Latin word rapturos. So if you're really hung up on having a Bible with the word rapture in it, get a Latin one and there you go, problem solved. Okay? All right? But as we see here in Revelation chapter 4, John is called by Jesus. Right? We see Jesus standing before him and he says, come up here. And then it says he's immediately in the presence of the Lord. Now that jives with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, because there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, it says the Lord descends from heaven with a shout. That word shout literally means a command. He descends from heaven with a command. Come up here. And then we are caught up together in the clouds with him. And so... Um, this is a picture of the rapture of the church here in chapter four of Revelation. And then you'll notice too that it says when John looked, he saw an open door in heaven and just quickly want to point out, you know, who opened that door? Jesus did, right? The one who called out Jesus. He says the one who called out with the same startling trumpet-like voice from chapter one, right? The same one. He's the one who called out. And I just want to point that out because there are some traditions that say, oh, we're going to get to heaven and there's going to be pearly gates and the St. Peter's going to be standing there with a ledger and he's going to check us in. No. That might be a cute picture, but that's not biblical. It's Jesus is the one that's going to call us up. And so he says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Come up here. Join me. Come up here to heaven. And then I will reveal to you, I will show to you what's going to take place after the church's time on earth. And so John, representing the saved, representing the church in heaven prior to tribulation, 
is then going to be shown, very important, from the viewpoint of heaven, what is taking place on the earth. Now, as Christians, all of our hope, all of our future hope rests in the promises of God. Right? The Bible talks about blessed is those who are looking forward to his appearing, who love his appearing. And those promises of, the, of his word to the faithful, to the overcomers, to the saved, the forgiven, those that are the cleansed by the blood of the lamb are promises of safety and promises of deliverance from the judgment and the wrath of God that's gonna come upon those who've rejected him. They're promises of deliverance. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, it says we are not appointed to wrath. We're not appointed to God's wrath and God's anger, but to salvation, it says. And then, of course, if you remember in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, to the letter of Philadelphia, it said, for enduring in your faith because you've endured, because you've kept my word and not denied my name, you will be kept from the hour of testing or the time of tribulation. And so we look forward to his coming. We look forward to the catching up in the air with him because it's our deliverance from the misery of this world. It's our deliverance from the judgment that is to come on those who have rejected Jesus. It's the reward for our endurance and perseverance as Christians during this time. It is the hope that keeps us moving forward each day until he comes for us. And guys, the glory that will be his presence on that day, wow, it's gonna be joy unspeakable. It is gonna be something we've never experienced. The whole presence of no more tears and no more sorrow and no more pain. All due to his presence. All due to being in his presence with him. Being in the presence of perfect love forever. And so you'll notice that it's his presence, which is the very first thing that John picks up on first in verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. You know, the very first thing we're going to see when we get to heaven, it's not going to be our loved ones. It's not going to be our crowns. It's not going to be the mansion he promised us. The very first thing we're going to see is God on his throne. God Almighty, perfection seated in glory and power and authority. You know, 12 times in chapter four, we see the word throne recorded here. And throughout the entire book of Revelation, the word throne is used 45 times. So it's an important concept. The throne that God sits upon is a very important concept. This word throne refers to the seat of authority, the seat of power, the seat of majesty, the seat of honor. Right, it's the place where all of that is sourced from and in God is the ultimate authority seated on that throne. He is the creator. He is in control of the entire universe. And so this picture, the first thing John sees up in heaven is God on the throne. It, it, it speaks of God's sovereign, um, um, rightful rule. He is the creator. He is the, the, the rightful ruler, but he is also the rightful judge. And it tells us that the judgment that is about to come upon the earth is right, is righteous, is just and holy. It's interesting because in the world today, you 
hear atheists and, and, and materialists, both of these, these philosophies, atheism and materialism, they preach that there is no throne, right? There's no throne. There's no seat of authority or, or power anywhere that the universe must answer to. There's no source of right and wrong. None of that exists, but, but there is. <laughs> there is, and God sits upon it. Humanism says there is a throne, but man sits on it. We determine our own fate and our own uh, uh, course of living, but that ain't right either. It's God who sits on the throne, and what an encouragement for the suffering Christians of, of, of John's day, right? And, 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 and Christians who are suffering for all of time, what an encouragement that no matter what happens here on earth, God is on the throne, people. God is on the throne. It's not empty. We don't show up and say, Daddy, I need to talk to you. Oh, he's not here right now. Sorry, come back in 20 minutes. I'm on a lunch break. It doesn't happen. God is on the throne, and he's always on the throne. And so this morning, if, if you're watching, you're here, and you're discouraged. Maybe you're going through a, a Smyrna or a Philadelphia time of persecution, right, for your faith. Remember, God is on the throne. But if you're also going through a time represented by any of the other churches, <laughs> where you've grown cold in your dogmatic theology and you're unloving, or you've allowed corruption or compromise into your faith, remember, God is on the throne. God is always on the throne. So John sees, it says, the one sitting here, and in, in the first thing he sees is an appearance. That word appearance means a similar in characteristic of jasper and carnelian stone. Now, what I do find interesting is that there's no description of a distinct figure or a distinct shape or dimensions, right? It's like, oh, I saw a 15-foot-tall figure, right? It's none of that. It's just a description of the glory that's emanating from the throne, you know, we have all these different descriptions of God throughout Scripture. God is spirit, God is light, God is this, God is that. God is holy, supernatural, and otherworldly, and I don't believe that there are words in any language to fully describe everything about God. And so what John is doing here is he's, he's just describing the glory emanating from this throne. And he says it's like jasper and carnelian stone. Jasper is a precious stone. Today, um, Jasper's, uh, Jasper's stone can be seen as like a, a reddish hue or green or brown or blue or yellow or white, right? Today, uh, Jasper is, is kind of restricted to any type of opaque quartz, okay? That's what Jasper's, Jasper is today. But in, in antiquity, Jasper could also be referring a stone that's considerably translucent, even clear like a diamond. And we see that in Revelation 21.11 when it's describing the New Jerusalem's radiance, the glory that is the city of the New Jerusalem. It says this, it's shining like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So he uses jasper, and then he says carnelian. Carnelian was another precious stone that, that was a translucent red, similar to like a ruby, what you would imagine with a ruby. And then what's interesting is the words for jasper and carnelian here aren't referring to the raw, unfinished stone. They're referring to, in the original language, stones that have been cut for use in jewelry. So the picture here is, is of this beautiful, beautiful, radiant, red-white brilliance coming from the throne of God. 
Now, you might go, well, why red and white, <laughs> right? Why these two? There's a whole bunch of other stones out there. Why, why jasper and carnelian? Well, I believe it's a reference to Exodus 28. Um, there in Exodus 28, we have a description of the high priest of Israel who wore a breastplate across their chest, and this breastplate covered their heart because it represented um, that the people of God were close to the heart of the high priest. But on this breastplate was a setting of 12 gemstones. And so there was four rows of gemstones, three stones in each row, and each one of the stones was inscribed with a name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? Um, so again, we've had the picture from chapter one, and then you go into Hebrews, right, that Jesus is our high priest. And, and, and Jesus, uh, the people of God are close to the heart of Jesus, we see that. But what we also see here is that on this breastplate back in Exodus 28, the very first stone was the carnelian stone. And the very last stone was the jasper stone, which I find interesting because Jesus has already introduced himself as the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But even on top of that, this red-white radiance that is shining from the throne of God, on that carnelian stone on the high priest's breastplate was inscribed the name of the tribe of Reuben. Reuben means behold, a son. The last stone, the jasper, what was inscribed on that one was the name of the tribe of Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And so we see here, in the throne room of God, this red-white brilliance shining forth, emanating from the throne, and it's a picture of Jesus Christ. God Almighty, simultaneously the second person of the Trinity, our high priest, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, seated on the throne on high. Beautiful picture. Now I also see a reference, again, a further reference to the triune nature of God, but I'll deal with that in a, in a little bit. So you have this red-white brilliance, and then it says a, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. So the appearance of an emerald, that, that could be a greenish hue, so it was a rainbow with a greenish hue. But this rainbow surrounded the throne. What's the rainbow remind us of? It takes us back to Noah's flood, right? It takes us back to that rainbow, which was a reminder of God's commitment to his covenant with man after the flood. I will never again destroy the earth with water. That judgment happened once, but I'll never do it that way again. But when we get through some of the New Testament writings, we see that judgment will come again in fire. But this rainbow is a reminder surrounding the seed of sovereignty and power and authority and glory is this reminder that God is limited by his own promises. A throne says, I can do whatever I want because I rule. Right? That's what a throne says. But a promise says, I will fulfill this word to you and I cannot do otherwise. And that's what this green-hued rainbow shows us. The green hue, I don't know. It's like an emerald, okay? Um, but the idea is that, that God will always limit himself by his own promises. Now, usually a rainbow appears after the storm, right? That's what happened with the flood. After the storm, the rainbow is appearing. But here we see it before the storm of judgment falling upon the earth telling us that, that God is full of mercy, telling us that God will never judge beyond his promises. But as much as, as he has promised to never again judge the world by the flood, as I said, there is a sovereign promise of judgment by fire for those who disregard the promises of God. And that is about to come. However, the church, we are safe from that wrath. 
Now we as Christians, we rest in the glory and sovereignty of God. We find peace in the glory and the sovereignty of God because that glory and that sovereignty, it's on our side. (laughs) That's why we rest in that. That's why we hang on to those promises that are made to us. Spurgeon said this, O child of God, thy heavenly Father in his sovereignty has the right to do with you his child as he pleases, but he will never let that sovereignty get out of the limit of his covenant. As a sovereign, he might cast you away, but he has promised that he never will, and never will he. As a sovereign, he might leave you to perish, but he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. As a sovereign, he might suffer you to be tempted beyond your strength, but he has promised that no temptation shall happen to you, but such that is common to man, and he will with the temptation always make a way of escape. We rest in his glory and sovereignty because we're his kids, and his promises to us are are yes and amen. It's his will that we rest in. Now verse four, he goes on. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. And so John is immediately in heaven. First thing he sees is the throne of God and the glory emanating from it and the representation of God's promise surrounding that throne. And then his perception goes from the throne now to to what's happening uh, around the throne in the throne room. And so he sees these 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. And so the first question, obviously, is, well, who are they? What is the significance of the 24 elders? Well, nowhere in Revelation does it tell us. It doesn't say, here's the identity of the 24 elders. It just references these 24 elders. But there's clues. There's clues that we can pick up through the word to, to put this together. And, and um, I believe these 24 elders are, are representatives of the raptured church. They're in the throne room of God. Some think that they're angels, they're angelic beings. I, I don't think so because... Um, of, of what kind of the word lines up here. The first clue is that they're sitting on thrones in the throne room of God. That suggests that they're reigning with Christ because the word throne is the same word, seat of authority and power, right? Probably littler thrones, but thrones nonetheless. And so in 2 Timothy 2.12, it says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. You remember the letter to Laodicea? It said, the one who conquers will get the right to sit with me on my throne. Now, sitting with me on my throne is the idea of sitting with me in a place of authority. Nowhere in Scripture do we ever see angels ruling or sitting on thrones in this manner. On top of that, in the Greek, the word elders that is used there, these 24 elders, that word is only ever used to refer to humans, never used to refer to angels. And then they're wearing white clothes, right? Now, this one, we do see angels clothed in white, but, but as we've just read through the letters, the seven letters of the churches, this white clothing is commonly a reference to, to Christ's righteousness being imputed upon us in salvation, right? You remember in Sardis, it said the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. And then in Laodicea, he goes, look, I implore you, buy white clothes from me. Then they have these golden crowns on their head, and throughout Scripture, crowns are never promised to angels, nor do we ever see angels wearing crowns, um, but they are promised to people, those who endure and that are faithful to Christ. And incidentally, this word for crown means the victor's crown, not the royal's crown. (laughs) It's not the crown that the king would wear. It's a crown given as a reward in victory. It's kind of like that laurel wreath you would get at the Olympics. That's the idea here. It's a reward for achievement. And again, we go back to the letter to Smyrna and then James chapter 1, verse 12 as well. Both places talk about us receiving the crown of life as a reward for perseverance. But I think the biggest uh, support that these, are, these elders represent the church, 
the, the humans who have overcome, the people, God's people, is in Revelation chapter five, verses eight through 10, and we'll get there in a couple weeks after the Easter season, but this is what it says there. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So again, I believe he's referring to people that are representing the church. What is represented there in heaven after the church age prior to the tribulation on the earth is the church there in the throne room with God. These are the overcomers who will return with Christ at the second coming to reign with him during the millennial kingdom, the thousand years that is gonna take place after the second coming. These are the ones who overcame the world and sin and the flesh and the enemy. And they were crowned with that crown of victory by what? Well, 1 John 5, 4, it says, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world, this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation, those who trust in them for everything, in him for everything, those who trust in, in God's provision for them, they have no trust in their own um, ability, whatever. It's, it's not earning their way to heaven, it's, like, it's by the blood of Christ and that alone. And so we go on in verse five. He says, flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. This is a picture reminiscent of Mount Sinai. That was the first place we saw these rumblings and these peals of thunder and flashes of lightning. And if you remember, it was at Mount Sinai where the people were judged by God. They were judged there for their complaining and their idolatry and they're not trusting the Lord and and they started making their own idols and stuff, and God judged them. But there at Mount Sinai, Moses was there. The elders of the people of Israel were there. Lightning, peals of thunder, rumbling, all of that. But what does this lightning and stuff represent now coming from the throne of God? Well, looking back to that picture of Mount Sinai, it represents that judgment is about to come. It's the righteous fury of God. It's the judgment that is about to pour forth on the world. It's rumbling. It's coming from the throne. In chapter 6, we're going to see it starting to be poured out. His throne today is currently a throne of grace during the church age. But after this, after this, that grace will be over and it will be a time of judgment and a terrible time of judgment. But here in the throne room, he sees that thunder. Then he says, I see seven fiery torches that were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. I love it when he tells us what it is. Right, because we're not going, well, uh, uh, you know. These seven torches are the seven spirits of God. Now we've talked about this a couple times in one of the letters, he references this, and the idea is that these seven fiery torches, or in other translations it says seven-fold spirit of God instead of the seven spirits of God, it represents the Holy Spirit. It represents the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The number seven, biblically, is the number of completion, and so it's this complete revelation of the Holy Spirit. And again, if you go back to the letter to Sardis, Revelation chapter one, verse four, Isaiah 11, 11, 2, you'll see all these concepts of the sevenfold Spirit of God referencing the Holy Spirit. And this is where I see a glimpse of the triune nature of God here in God's throne room in chapter 4 of Revelation. Throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, when you see the concept of the throne of God, 
the place where God sits. Um, in the Old Testament, it's typically, not exclusively, but typically a reference to where God the Father sits, the throne. He's, he's the one that sits on the throne in heaven. But then what John is seeing on that throne, shining from it is this brilliance, this red and white brilliance, which speaks of and represents the sun, right? The red one, behold the sun, the white one, the sun of my right hand. And then right before the throne, we see these seven torches, which represents the Holy Spirit. Collectively together, having welcomed the faithful into heaven, ready to judge the world. Now in verse six, he goes on to say, something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like, like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and they were covered with eyes around and inside. What? Well, first of all, back up to the torches, right? Um, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, it tells us that the tabernacle in the wilderness was, was a model of heaven, right? You go read that in Hebrews chapter 8. It talks about how, what, how the tabernacle was set up, the design, the very specific instructions God gave them. All of that was a model. It was, it was a picture of, of heaven. And so in that tabernacle that was here on earth, we had a seven-branched lampstand, right? Here in heaven, we have these seven fiery torches that represent the Holy Spirit. In the tabernacle, there was this bronze bowl um, that had water in it. In, in liquid water, right? And in this bronze bowl, in order to the, for the priest to, to do what they were called to do there in the tabernacle, they had to dip their hands in this water and wash themselves off before they can uh, participate in the sacrifice, right? Um, so when he says, I see something like a sea of glass, right? John is doing his best here with human words <laughs> to describe heaven, okay? So, um, yeah, I was like, okay, let's cut John a little slack here, right? You know, can you be more specific? I think he's trying the best he can, right? But something like a sea of glass. Now, we've all seen glass, right? It's translucent, it's clear, right? But it, it, it's, it's spread out before him in the throne room of God. Now, when he says a sea of glass, I believe the indication there is it looks like something that should be liquid, but it's not. It's not. And it's before the throne. It's glass. It's a sea of glass. In the tabernacle was this water where you had to wash before you could come into the presence of God. In heaven, that water, that liquid is no longer liquid. It's solid. Why? Because there's no washing anymore when we're in heaven in the presence of God. The sacrifice is done. The sacrifice is sitting on the throne right there in front of us. There's no more cleansing. We are cleansed. And we stand on his work and his promises. That's what I believe he's referring to here with the sea of glass. There's no need for cleansing before coming into the presence of God anymore. Why? Because it's finished. It's done. Jesus died on the cross. He paid the price, and we stand on that finished work before the presence of God. But then we get to these four living creatures. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody got an idea? No. Um, there, there was a weird trend on social media a little while ago. Um, it, it's still kind of out there, but I started seeing across social media a lot where people would do drawings of what they called biblically accurate angels, right? If you want to not sleep for a few days, go look, go look up some of those. They, they, would, they would take these descriptions and do a literal drawing <laughs> of these things, and some of them are quite just scary looking. 
But we have here this description, and remember, John is describing what he's seeing as best he can with his limited human language. Um, but he goes something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal. And then he describes these four creatures, and I, I believe there was four creatures there that, that were there standing before him. And I believe these creatures were indeed covered with eyes in front and back. So just eyeballs head to toe. Weird creepy image, but he doesn't say like. He just describes it that way. And then he goes, they were like a lion and like an ox and like and so on and so forth. So what's interesting is these four creatures are similarly described in Ezekiel chapter one, right? And you want to go do your own homework, go study Ezekiel chapter one. You'll see these same four creatures described, subtle differences where here one is like a lion, one is like an ox, one has the face of a man, but in Ezekiel, each one of them, they have all four faces, right? Like there's it's just, it's a really interesting description. And then in Ezekiel chapter one, what's really interesting is he sees these four creatures underneath the sea of glass. But here we're now on top of the sea of glass. So, um, don't know what that means, just an interesting detail. But these are some kind of supernatural beings, right? Um, in Ezekiel, they're referred to as cherubs, right? Some people call them cherubim, a certain type of angel. Um, but they're also described as having six wings, and in Isaiah, you have seraphim, which is another class of angel that have these six wings that are encircling the throne. Um, so, but the picture here is that these four creatures, these very strange creatures, they're, they're connected to God's presence and his power and his holiness, right? Um, this whole eyes, front and back, right? It says head to toe, they're covered in eyes, and their wings are all covered in eyeballs, um, Perhaps it's a reference to the fact that, that these four creatures who serve at God's will um, in his presence, nothing escapes them, that they, 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 see, um, they see everything. And maybe it's, they're, they're representing that nothing is hidden in the presence of God, that all is revealed in God's presence. And these creatures, they, they see everything on behalf of God, including beholding the glory of God 24 hours a day, seven days a week for all eternity, eyes wide open. What a magnificent place to be. To be in a place where there is nothing inhibiting you just basking in the glory of God. And these four creatures get to do that. But then their descriptions, right? Three of them are like a lion, ox, and a flying eagle. And one of them, it says that it has a face like a man. There's a few different interpretations of this, um, what these characteristics refer to. Some look at it and they say the lion, ox, and the face of a man, and eagle, they, they each represent um, an aspect of the complete nature of Jesus Christ because they are beholding his glory directly at all times. And so um, the one that's a lion, right? The Bible says that, that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so that, that picture, like a lion, is, is representing that strength and that authority that a lion exudes. The ox, like an ox, where an ox is a humble servant, right? Very strong, very powerful, doesn't complain. You just, you know, yoke it up and it does its thing, Right? Then you have the face of a man, which is representing that Jesus has a perfect identification with mankind. He identifies with us perfectly. And then the, the eagle, um, just representative of his deity, his sovereign supremacy, that he is high above all things, right? Some look at it like that. Others look at these four, um, four descriptions as representing the four gospels, right? Because when you look at the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give us kind of four aspects of the life of Jesus and who he was and his mission. And so the Gospel of Matthew, which was written to a Jewish audience, that's represented by the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah. 
Then you have the Gospel of Mark, which focused on Jesus' work and his action, right? Gospel of Mark is characterized by the word immediately. And immediately they did this, and immediately they did this, and immediately, and so it's like move, 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 right? Then you have the Gospel of Luke, which is all about the humanity of Jesus. And then, of course, the Gospel of John, which was all about the divinity of Jesus, the fact that he was God and far above all things. Personally, I'm not sure exactly what they refer to, but both of those vibe with what I see in Scripture. And so, um, but I don't think what those creatures represent is important as what they are doing. What are they doing? Look in verse 8. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Day and night, they never stop. Their perfect perception, their perfect beholding of God's glory, what does it result in? Endless worship. Never-ending worship. They're proclaiming the eternal holiness of Jesus Christ, God Almighty, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And, and that's what we're going to be doing in heaven for eternity, forever worshiping and proclaiming God in all his glory. Like when we get there, we're going to be overwhelmed at how right and how perfect and how holy and how just he is. We're going to be overwhelmed with all of it. And, and to be honest, eternity won't feel like long enough to praise him because of how glorious he is. And if you don't like worship, well, you're going to struggle a bit in heaven, I think. Um, you know, Because look what the elders do in verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Again, if you're a note taker, I want you to note what the worship of the living creatures consisted of. What does it say there? They gave God glory, honor, and thanks. That was what their worship consisted of. You see, worship doesn't just mean music. It doesn't mean songs and lights. It doesn't mean a full worship band. It doesn't mean words on the screen. Um, Worship is definitely not about like, well, I don't like that style of music, right? Worship is giving Jesus glory, honor, and thanks in all things. That's what worship is. And, and that's what's taking place in heaven right now and what is gonna take place in heaven when we get there and what will take place in heaven forever. And it won't be enough time to give him all the glory he is due, all the honor he is due, and all the thanks he is due. And, and we should always think of worship in this way. It's giving to God what he deserves. It's not about me. It's about what song I like or what style of music I like. You know, sure, we, we have our things, right? I listen to worship that I like in my car because it's like screaming and hardcore music, right? And people go, oh, I don't like that. Well, you don't have to like it, but I do, and I'll listen to it on my own, right? But when I come here, I'm not sitting here crossing my arms going, Ugh, they're not doing the songs I like. It's, no, it's, it's for God. It belongs to God, because he is the one do the glory. 
Worship doesn't belong to you and me because guess what? We're not on the throne. He is. As the living creatures give God what is his, the elders fall down in worship. And what do they say? You are worthy. Now that idea of falling down, it means to bow low or to prostrate oneself. The idea is it, it's, it's a picture of, of willful, intentional submission to Jesus. That's, that's the idea here. Willful, intentional. Not begrudging. Not, well, I'll do it because I have to. It's, wait, I, I get to do this? And, 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 and there's not enough time to, to do it right. There's not enough time to give him what he's due, but they, they fall down. And it says they cast their crowns, their crowns of victory. They, they cast them before the throne. Why? Why would they do that? I mean, they hear what the living creatures are saying. They, they, they can't help but to fall on their faces and cast their crowns before the throne. Why, why do they do that? It's because of the realization that how am I to stand before God wearing a crown? How, how can I even do that? He deserves the praise. He deserves the reward. He deserves the accolade. He deserves the recognition. He deserves the glory. He deserves the honor. And, and he put a crown on my head? It's yours, God. Because you did it all. Sometimes our challenge as Christians can be is, is we want to wear the crown. We, we want the glory. It feels good to be recognized, right? It feels good to be patted on the back and have someone say, wow, you, you did a great job. I mean, yeah, it feels good. But sometimes we, we, we want that feeling a little too much and we start to take what belongs to God. We can't pridefully hang on to that which isn't ours to begin with. We need to acknowledge that God alone is responsible for every victory we have and be like these elders and say, our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power and thanks. Why? Because you do it all and all exists because of you. Our, le- our lives need to behold the glory of God. John, I believe, did his best here to describe the indescribable at the command of his Lord. You know, it's interesting. There's only two guys in Scripture that were invited up to heaven and sent back to the earth. Do you know who they were? John and Paul. Paul went up there and came back and was like, unlawful for me to even try to describe it. Mm -mm. John goes up there and Jesus says, write it down. Write it down. Why? So we could be encouraged. Heaven awaits all of those who trust in Jesus. Those who overcome, those who are faithful and endure. You notice nowhere is there ever a description of be perfect and you'll get into heaven. I'm so grateful for that. Says just be faithful. You're gonna stumble, get up, repent, keep moving forward. Keep trusting me. You believe in me? You might believe in me imperfectly. We'll get better day by day by day. Just walk with me. And I've promised you heaven. And in all the moments of this life, especially when things are difficult, especially when things are tough, I think the best thing we could do is take a moment to pause and just think about the majesty of God. 
Think about the wonder, the beauty, the power of your God. Think about what he's done. Think about every promise he has fulfilled. When you have that moment of saying, well, God gave me a promise and I'm not sure, think about the 10 billion times he's fulfilled his promises. He's got a perfect track record. He's never gonna let you down. You may not understand how things are happening in the moment, but God, help me to trust you because you have a perfect track record. Just take that moment to reflect and bask in his glory and let that glory empower you to keep moving towards the day where you're gonna meet him face to face, where he's gonna call you up to meet him in the air. I can't wait. I cannot wait for that day. And if God has me here one more day, okay. Okay. There's still people that don't know him, so let me, let me, let me share Jesus with somebody. Is it today, Lord? Nope, one more day? Okay. I really want to see these weird creatures. I just, honestly, I'm just like, what a, what a trip, you know? But more importantly, I just want to be there in the presence of my God who loves me, who died for me. I just want to worship him and in, 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 in be in that place, not where I'm ever going, oh, is worship done yet? But just like, there's not enough time in forever, God, for me to praise you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we know that even this here is, is, is an imperfect description of, of your glory and your holiness and your perfection. And, but God, it is still mind-bending what, what is before us as your children. The promises we have that, that, Lord, although this life may be difficult, Lord, you just, you just spoke to all seven of those churches, Lord, and all seven of those moments and experiences, they happen in our lives, God, and you speak to us those same promises that you know when it's difficult, and you know when we're struggling with compromise, and you know when we're struggling with, with corruption, and, and God, you know. And God, over and over in your word, you say, hold on. Endure, persevere, because there's a promise ahead of you, the glory of heaven, the hope of heaven, and I'm gonna come one day and I'm gonna call you there, and God, I pray that that day would be today. But if not, Lord, help us to just live every day in anticipation and expectation of that moment while we glorify you with our lives and proclaim the gospel to those that don't know you yet. God, everything we experience here on earth as your children is, is, is but a, a, a sample, a taste of what forever is going to be, God. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful to you in all things. And Lord, as we close today in worship, Lord, let it be a preview of coming attractions. That we would praise your holy name with everything that's in us because you are worthy of all glory and all honor and all thanks. We thank you, God. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's worship, guys.